Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC and California. We're very much looking forward to today's discussion. It's a unique one in that we're going to focus the discussion around a book, I think a first for Energy Unplugged. Many of you, particularly our US listeners, would be intimately familiar with the works of today's guests. Catherine Blunt is energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal. She's also written for the Houston Chronicle. Most importantly for this discussion, in late 2022, she released a brilliant book, California Burning, a history of Pacific gas and electric, one of California's major utilities. It's more than the history of one company, though, in that the story of PG&E is also a microcosm of the challenges of a changing climate, decarbonizing the power system, and regulating essential services in a politicized environment. Catherine, welcome to Energy Unplugged. Thanks so much for having me. We're also joined today by Aurora's Kim Liu, our Head of Research in California, who will be chatting to Catherine with me today. Hey, Kim. Hey, all. Awesome. Let's dive straight in. So before we get into detailed questions about California burning, I genuinely loved the book. I got my whole team to read it. We had a book club around it. What was the process of writing the book alongside your day-to-day commitments at the Wall Street Journal? Um, And how proud are you, I suppose, of the final result? Yeah, uh, it is an interesting challenge to be writing a book while working (laughs) full-time for the journal. Um, I didn't actually take any book leave, which is not something that I recommend if anyone's (laughs) considering a similar course of action. But uh, kind of through a a bit of trial and error, I found that it was most effective for me to write very early in the morning and then shift to my day job. And then uh, I would sometimes pick it back up in the evening, but it's it's hard to burn the candle at, at both ends, you know. Um, but it was uh, there were there were parts of the book that were really heavy lift, you know. Just it's it's a pretty research intensive, um, you know, product or project rather. Um, but the, you know, I, I'm I'm pleased to say that the reception and the feedback has even exceeded my expectations, which is really nice to be able to say that. And uh, it's it's made me feel as though all of that was worthwhile. Did you change your pro style at all? Like, did you think I'm I'm going to write in a different way because this is much longer than what I do day to day? Or was it, no, just be authentic and, and keep writing in the same way? It's a little different. I think by nature, I mean, narrative writing takes on a, naturally takes on a different quality than the writing you'd most commonly find in the newspaper. But I wouldn't say it was necessarily a substantial difference. However, it did give me the the leeway to flex my muscle stylistically in a way that I don't always have the opportunity to do, but one thing that was interesting is even, I think I spent about um, just under two years writing the book and to kind of, I definitely found a better 
flow and and I think style through that process. I like mm. go back to the first chapter and I'm like, huh, it's not necessarily aligning with chapter <laughs> nine. <laughs> so uh, it was it was it was interesting to do something over that long a period of time. Awesome. Let's get into the PG&E story then. So, I mean, there are a huge number of factors coming to play in this narrative. Climate change, you know, the long-term replacement of the generation fleet with renewables and storage and transmission, a very complex regulatory environment, some of which was the legacy of the Enron crisis. Could you just give us a summary for the listeners, particularly in Europe and APAC, who are less familiar with PG&E, what have been its major challenges over the last 10, 15 years? And then we can kind of get into the detail on each of them. The most notorious set of challenges it's been struggling with, of course, is the fact that its power lines continue to spark catastrophic wildfires. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have happened over the last five-ish years. We're talking about more than 20 major fires that have collectively killed more than 100 people. Um, the most well-known incident uh, occurred in late 2018 when a transmission line failed in the remote stretches of Northern California, igniting a fire that killed 84 people, destroyed the town of Paradise. Um, that The reason for that failure was a little bit unusual, but it was a really good lens through which to view how old some of our transmission infrastructure is. Another challenge that the company has is that um, it, it, it struggles to keep trees away from its lower voltage power lines. And mm-hmm. when those trees come into contact with the wires, they have the potential to spark fires. Uh, the forests, as a result of periods of very severe drought, are very, very dry, which makes the consequence of that failure uh, much higher than it has been historically. Mm-hmm. So a huge challenge for the company. So there's absolutely been the wildfires, at least in part, that triggered a couple of different bankruptcies as, as well. Could you kind of touch on those and like how that process has, has played out? Right. So the fires over the last five years resulted in the company's um, second bankruptcy filing, which uh, it completed the restructuring process in 2020. But it was a really, really complicated process um, that was expedited because uh, the bankruptcy had really significant economic consequences for California victims of the fires, other stakeholders in the process. Um, And that is in part because of a particular liability construct in California that I think we will get into in greater detail. But um, I mean, all of this has, uh, it it is a lens through which to, it's a lens through which to view a lot of things, but aging infrastructure is a huge theme that we're dealing with here. Mm. And it's not just limited to the company's power lines. The company also operates a network of um, natural gas pipelines and even before the fires, it had a major incident in which a large pipeline exploded and destroyed part of a neighborhood south of San Francisco, killing eight people. Um, and that resulted in a, in a long court trial that um, foreshadowed some of the issues that we're going to be talking about related to the fires. Yeah. And I mean, some of these challenges are unique, I think, to PG&E. And certainly, you know, I'm, I'm from Australia and certainly the kind of wildfire or bushfires, as we call it, and, and the interactions between those and electricity systems are, are a big issue there. Some of these are more just kind of generic challenges that I think all major utilities are grappling with around the world. And it'd be great to get, you know, your summation a little bit of some of the tensions between California being a first mover on renewables, decarbonizing, but also writing some fairly expensive contracts with early renewables, you know, our German and UK listeners would be very familiar with those um, and how that played out. You know, the tension between decarbonization and cost, which is less relevant now, renewables are cheap, but five, 10 years ago was was really pertinent. Yeah, um, it is a sort of an unfortunate irony that 
California for the last 20 plus years has been very focused on this broader issue of climate change and how do we reduce emissions to address that. Um, early on, legislators recognized the importance that the utility companies would play in helping this process and um, set a series of increasingly ambitious emissions reduction targets that required them to contract for renewables at a time when renewables were orders of magnitude more expensive than they are today. So they were signing these multi-million dollar contracts that collectively were costing billions of dollars a year. Um, I don't know how many listeners are necessarily familiar with utility accounting, but these are not capital expenditures on which they earned a return. They are expenses. I mean, they are just mm. kind of coming out of the bottom line. And it was those contracts were some of several factors that created cost pressure within PG&E specifically and um, was one of the reasons why the company over the course of many years was looking for ways to reduce expenses. And one of the ways that they did that was to reduce the frequency and the thoroughness of their inspection processes, um, which turned out to be very consequential. Um, and so the uh, talking about sort of the irony is the, the, the irony is that in pursuit of these um, long term emissions reduction targets, kind of the long term look at the changing climate, I think there's a lot of people and stakeholders here who sort of failed to recognize that, I mean, drought made worse by climate change was making the consequences of infrastructure failure higher and the companies all the companies, but PG&E in particular, weren't doing enough to address that. Yeah. You've touched on it a little bit there, but again, in some ways, California is quite a unique regulatory environment. It's almost like it got half the way through like privatization, deregulation, and then kind of paused. And, and there were reasons for that in the early 2000s, which your book does an excellent job of summarizing. But could you just explain a little bit, because it's important context, I think, for the rest of the discussion, the relationship between kind of PG&E and the regulator and what it is and isn't allowed to do to, to some degree, like, you know, how it is actually allowed to build new new generation and, and how it's, uh, you know, maintenance and capital budgets are set? Just for more context than even that, it, it's interesting to think about PG&E over the course of most of the 20th century. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a really... I was a hugely instrumental company in promoting the overall economic development and prosperity of, of California um, in terms of the building out this infrastructure that supported population growth and higher quality of living and, and all of uh, the things that we sort of take for granted today. Um, but in the sort of the later part of the century, um, in, in part because of overspending on nuclear plants and other things, um, electricity prices were high in, in not mm. just in California, but across the country. And you began to have this growing interest in deregulating the electricity electricity sector. And it's like kind of not the right word, in my opinion, because like electricity will always be regulated. But what yeah, this yeah. meant was that the um, specifically the function of generation was going to be given to the competitive market. So instead of having your typical vertically integrated utility that controls generation and transmission and delivery of electricity, generation was going to be hived off and given to competitive power producers who would then sell that output to the utilities who would either then deliver the power to customers or you might have some competitive retailers but anyway like the utilities were going to be primarily functioning as the the middlemen or the intermediaries in that process and so california was one of the first states to really undertake this in earnest um California energy crisis of 2000, 2001 was a big disaster. The, not to bore anyone, but the market design was, was flawed in a way that made it so that um, 
wholesale prices were low for a little while, but then they skyrocketed because of supply scarcity and market manipulation. Enron was involved in that. And of the three large California utilities, all of them really struggled. The PG&E ultimately sought bankruptcy protection for the first time. And there were two consequences of that. For The first one was that upon emerging from bankruptcy, the company was really intent on regaining the goodwill of its shareholders, reestablishing itself as a strong player on Wall Street. And utilities do that by making large capital expenditures and minimizing expenses. That's the just the, the simple formula. <laughs> so that would have longer term consequences. The other uh, thing that's significant to think about when you're trying to assess the effect of deregulation was that California sort of pieced together the wholesale market again and restructured it in a way that would be, you know, functional and, and um, a, a workable model going forward. The utilities would never play the same role again in building generation facilities. I mean, they sort of they own some. I mean, PG&E still has a hydro, but it mostly sold yeah. off all of its um, gas plants and other things during the deregulation push. It has a very limited generation fleet as it stands, and so going after deregulation, all of these companies were, as we were talking about earlier, contracting for a very expensive power instead of making the capital investments in the new generation. And so that was just a, a total change in the way that they did business and the way the op, the opportunities they had to build and earn the return on the uh, 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 earn a return on those investments. Terrific. Well, I think we've given the listeners some context then on the PG&E story, but I, I suspect we'll jump back and forward a little bit here. You know, part of what your book, I think, does a brilliant job of doing is just explaining the kind of intractability of the PG&E problem. And I suppose my question is kind of what, what's the end game here for PG&E? There's all these different forces, kind of increasingly tight regulation, but lots of liabilities you know, still pressure from the stock market to deliver healthy mm-hmm. returns, pressure to decarbonize from policymakers. And that's only ramped up in the last couple of years since the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other things have, have come to the fore. But, it, it, you know, and, and PG&E certainly went through a number of different CEOs. You do a great job of giving kind of thumbnail portraits of those. Uh, how do you see this playing out? I, I don't think the government kind of wants to, you know, renationalize almost and, and, and bring it back but at the same time you know just does it go through periodic bankruptcies as these pressures mount or can a better management team which seems to be the trajectory at the moment kind of lead it out of these problems that's a million dollar question i mean i think that to your point i think that so in across the united states for the most part power is delivered by these privately held utilities that are you know they're sort of hybrids right they're privately held, publicly traded, and overseen by regulators. Hmm. And um, that model, I think, uh, is at this point very difficult to change. When you think about a company the size of PG&E, it would be a really significant drain on state resources for the state to take that over. And when you think about even just the management of the company, probably a lot of the same people who work there would work there, whether the state yeah. owns it or whether private investors own it, right? I mean, there, there is some merit in discussing the removal of the profit motive, because that's been problematic for the company over time. But any ownership model inter- like may solve one challenge, but introduce others, right? There's no real perfect solution here. So and then I also just think that there's there's a real practical reality of the challenge of wresting control from shareholders as it mm. stands. And I think that like right now, 
for the foreseeable future, PG, the ownership model with PG&E will remain the same, which mm. make which begs the question: you know, How do you operate better under those structures, um, or that structure in particular? And um, the new management team has a really ambitious plan to bury a significant part of the system because if the lines are underground, they really can't start fires. Um, I think theoretically, this is supposed to thread the needle between, you know, um, spending on safety and making the big capital investments that will you know, re-endear the company uh, on Wall Street um, and yeah. allow it to begin delivering meaningful returns. Um, but there's real practical challenges associated with this. This she, um, The new CEO kind of committed the company to this plan even before some of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing, supply chain issues. Coming out of its second bankruptcy, the company wasn't particularly financially healthy. It actually mm. came out with more debt than it went in, which is pretty remarkable. And uh, this is a little bit complicated, but it, it ended up shaking out that fire victims indirectly hold shares in the company now as part of their compensation package. So the company is limited both in its ability to issue debt as well as new equity because that would dilute what the fire victims hold. So a lot of the traditional utility finance levers are sort of, um, uh, they, they can't pull them to the degree that you would expect. And then you've got the fact that, I mean, all of this is going to be expensive and rates in California are very high. So it's a tough, tough needle to thread. And yeah. I think like if they can pull it off, it could be, uh, it could create substantially better circumstances for this company. But like at this point, it's, it's a big if, and it's going to take several years to see whether that will come to fruition. It does. And I mean, that, that was kind of to some degree what I left your book with the impression of that where we've got to, and I think this is often the case as you come out of complex bankruptcies, it is a kind of unstable equilibrium. We've kicked the can down the road another two or three years, but it's, you know, PG, PG&E is just not on a super safe footing and no. another incident could kind of trigger the whole cycle again, basically, whatever that incident looked like, you know, wouldn't necessarily have to be bushfires. It could be, it could be something else. Yeah, and I think that one interesting thing is that in the interim here, as the company sorts through how to make meaningful long-term investments in risk reduction, how to most do that most effectively, in the interim, whenever there are risky fire conditions, it, it simply shuts off the power. So whether that be with warning, like they do something called a public safety power shutoff mm. in which they give customers some window of a heads up and then the power might be off from anywhere from a few hours to like worst case a few days during the windiest season. They've also changed the settings on the power line so that if anything comes into contact with a live wire, the line just trips off, which has the potential to create a shorter outage um, that has the potential to you know reduce fire risk, but potentially more frequent outages for certain customers. So you're either kind of seeing the power shut off for a few minutes, many times over the course of a week, or like several hours to several days, several times a season. It's it's not really a sustainable way of being long-term, right? Because customers ex- do have some expectation of safe and reliable power. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you've identified several of the challenges facing PG&E, but one of the additional and key ca- challenges that you touch upon in the book is the regulation of transmission. How do you balance the cost discipline and avoid gold plating while also rewarding um, very intelligent and necessary maintenance is, you know, failing to do failing to do so and to strike that balance is becoming increasingly consequential? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a it's a really good question. Like, to be sure, most of the major fires 
ignited by PG&E's power lines have started because of some sort of tree or branch has hit a lower voltage distribution line somewhere. But the campfire that happened in 2018 and killed 84 people occurred when a hook holding up a wire on a high voltage transmission tower broke basically in half and dropped the wire. The wire swung against the metal tower um, and that was it. And that the hook itself, really the transmission line itself was uh, almost exactly a hundred years old. Mm. And it was some of the original infrastructure from this big push to um, develop a system to support hydroelectric development in California at the turn of the 20th century. And, um, you know, these lines are in really remote parts of the um, Sierra Nevada foothills and hard to access, uh, very old. And they don't, relative to some of the other big transmission lines in California, they don't serve a huge number of people. Mm. And so like all some of the inputs that utilities, not just PG, but other, many utilities use in trying to allocate investment dollars is like, what does the most to improve reliability? You know, what does the most to improve service for the most customers? Um, there's a few ways of going about transmission spending. I mean, there's, there's certain capital projects that you can Im- embark upon that will improve the system. But then there's also just simple maintenance expenses of switching out these tiny parts that have been hanging up in the towers for decades or in this case, a hundred years. And um, PG&E was working pretty diligently to minimize expenses, especially on some of those remote lines, really exactly at the time when they really needed some serious maintenance attention and could have benefited from additional maintenance spending, whether it be capital or expense, right? And um, and I will just say like, the company was sort of trying to shift some of those maintenance expenses into the capital budget, which I think like, I don't know, maybe at the end of the day, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference, but if you're going to, it's going to take five years to do a capital project and you could switch out that hook in span of five days, you know, it's, I think it's a calculus that it needs to be taken into consideration. But um, in terms of regulation of transmission lines to your original question, the, Government has some oversight of transmission, but largely from a, like the reliability of the bulk power system. That's the primary concern. Not really scrutinizing the sort of maintenance expenses <laughs> that the companies may or may not be doing. And that sort of falls to state regulatory authorities, but generally speaking, they just don't really have the resources to be looking at that. And so I think that that's sort of a, a very much a regulatory gray area that probably deserves more attention at this point, given the age of the transmission system. Um, Moving a bit beyond the utility, regulators in California are criticized in your book for not doing enough to get ahead of PG&E's problems, but again, a super tough job. What could regulators have done a bit differently to to better manage PG&E over the last couple of decades? It's interesting. Um, Well, I think, you know, for one, uh, the main regulatory body that oversees PG&E is the California Public Utilities Commission. Like many different governmental agencies, it could do more with more resources. I mean, that's always been it's the case for the CPUC and really anything mm-hmm. else. But in terms of resource allocation, for many years, if you worked within the CPUC, you wanted to be overseeing the procurement of renewable energy contracts, sort of the mm-hmm. policy side of things. It had the most cachet. I think, I mean, those jobs probably paid the best. They clearly mm-hmm. kind of had the priority within 
the um, the agency and as well as, of course, the, the legislature, which approves the, the funding for the agency. The safety division, by comparison, was very much understaffed and had difficulty retaining good talent. Um, mm-hmm. In part just because, I mean, if you are within the safety division of the PUC, you might be doing a function that is quite similar to a similar function within the utility company and the private industry pays better, <laughs> right? So you'd see, you know, someone overseeing distribution, maintenance, bending, and then, you know, pg e offers them twice as much to go do the same thing in-house, you know? And, um, and uh, so there was uh, limits in the visibility that the agency had into uh, the the conditions of this infrastructure. Another thing though was there was a really um, devastating fire in Southern California in San Diego, in the San Diego area um, in 2007 that ignited as a result of um, power line failure. And it sort of kicked the agency into gear and then it started to think about whether it should try to do more to, to push utilities to address fire risk. This was like, around 2008 and the proceeding ended up lasting for three or four years. Um, And the agency required the Southern California utilities to do more because fire has historically been more of a problem in Southern California. Mm. They didn't require PG&E to take the same steps because historically fire risk hasn't been as high in Northern California, but there were a lot of signs that fire risk was escalating as a result of the dry conditions. I think it was probably a missed opportunity to try to look forward a bit and say, if this continues to persist and the forests continue to dry out and millions of trees continue to die, what does that mean for fire risk in Northern California? And so by the time pg e was required to do anything by way of fire mitigation, years had passed and there'd been a lot of changes to its service territory. So the book was released in August of 2022, and it covers up to about the end of 2021. And a lot has happened since then, you know, rising concerns about energy security in light of Ukraine, supply chain issues that have persisted, to kind of name a few. How optimistic are you for PG&E's future in regard to the next five to 10 years with Patty Poppy now at the helm and with the plans to underground all of these lines? Yeah, I mean, if there's any good takeaways here, it's that PG&E has never been more aware of the risks that it faces and that lack of awareness has historically been a big part of the problem. So now it has a much greater awareness, which is um, really an excellent first step in addressing all of these these challenges. But I mean, that said, the the challenges remain very acute. You know, the the near-term solution that is implemented of essentially cutting power when conditions are unsafe is not sustainable because we're so reliant on electricity and becoming more so every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the long-term risk reduction plan that it has in place, I mean, has the potential to be very beneficial, but it is expensive and cost management is going to be both cost management and finding the money necessary to complete this mm-hmm. are going to be real challenges to the point where I would not be surprised if they end up sort of modifying the plan in terms of how much they end up putting underground versus finding potentially cheaper alternatives for risk mitigation, at least over the next five, 10 years. We'll see. Um, So, you know, in some ways, the challenges are even more acute than they were when she took over in 2021. Um, I think the company's made a lot of progress, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to foresee 
the way certain things have changed even in the last like two or three years. So it's, <laughs> we'll see what happens over the next two or three years. <laughs> Imagine that's the challenge in writing a book like this. As soon as you finish, a whole pile of interesting stuff happens. Oh, completely. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. You, you know, maybe you've got to do the updated edition, but I imagine that's a fairly painful process as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, Catherine, we spent a lot of time on PG&E and California burning. I did want to rapid fire on a few other topics because I think you have a really unique perspective and must talk to you know, a whole pile of different energy market participants. Um, as a start, we've discussed the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot on this pod over the last few months. Um, what are your takes or what are the one or two items within the IRA that you think are going to have the biggest impact on the US energy system? I think there are quite a lot of views. I mean, obviously, the... Uh, tax credits for wind and solar, the very generous $3 a kilo hydrogen subsidies. I mean, there's a huge amount in there. What's what's your take on what's going to have the biggest impact? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's so much packed into this bill. And I guess it, it, I guess strictly from a power supply standpoint, I'll just kind of mm. look at it through that lens. It's got it, we've got it now, a st- uh, tax credit for standalone storage in a way that you didn't see before. And I mean, we're going to need to deploy huge amounts of storage to uh, augment wind and solar if there's any hope of actually meeting some of the decarbonization targets that have been set. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that credit for hydrogen production plays out because I think, um, you know, there's that uh, an editor of mine uh, has a, a good joke, you know, I guess hydrogen is the fuel of the future and always will be, <laughs> right? But like maybe we're moving. <laughs> maybe we're moving into a period in which it's finally having its moment we will see but i mean it could be so critical in um uh decarbonizing a lot of industrial processes and of course um potentially used in uh in place of natural gas and in um power plants one of the biggest energy companies in the u.s is betting really big on that and trying to make all of the um gas plants in florida run on uh, green hydrogen in particular Mm big, big player in the space. So that sort of investment could potentially be a game changer. Um, we will see, but yeah, I mean, those two things on the power supply front could be very significant. Uh, the geopolitics of energy. So what lessons do you think us policymakers are taking from Europe's current energy crisis? And I mean, obviously you can't control a, a land war in Europe, but you know, even the market design, right? Like really ab- aggressive price caps coming in, uh, you know, re-regulation of, of different parts of the market. What, what do you think US policymakers are kind of making of the situation in Europe at the moment? Yeah, it's interesting because like it, um, sort of the different markets kind of are so different and, and function so so differently. But I think that one thing that, that this has really underscored is sort of the importance of fuel supply and fuel security. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, we are sending a lot of natural gas abroad right now, which has raised certain challenges within the U.S., particularly, for example, in New England. Um, New England is really competing for that natural gas because it's very reliant on it during the winter months. Yeah. Um, and then also, I mean, we have seen issues um, in which there's just, I mean, during cold periods, power plants have difficulty getting fuel because the fuel supply system isn't regulated in the same way as the electricity supply uh so, or, you know like the delivery of electricity and uh, the bulk power system so um that sort of divide is, is proving to be problematic and i think we've seen sort of some of the same stuff in in europe and it raises questions about how to um ensure greater stability there going forward mm. um and then maybe one 
final rapid fire question before I hand it back over to Kim. You know, the US is so interesting, right? Because you've got 50 states and and obviously not 50 uh, different energy systems, but, you know, they're just Kaizo and ERCOD and PJM and MISO and the rest of them are just going through uh, decarbonization in, in very different ways, as well as the fact you've still got a whole pile of vertically integrated systems. And there was an article actually last week in the New York Times talking about you know, has the whole, you know, deregulation project been a failure? Has it led to higher costs for consumers? And and so people question, you know, some of the fundamental tenets of energy market redesign that have occurred over the last 40 years. Which of the systems do you think is doing the best job overall of balancing security uh, and reliability, customer costs and, and decarbonisation? Or have they all got their own problems and you just need to pick and choose because, you know, none of them have yeah. nailed it in its entirety? I think the short answer is they all have their own problems. <laughs> uh, you know, it is interesting. I, I lived in Texas during the Texas freeze, mm. right? And I wrote this big article about how this energy only system doesn't pay for capacity, right? It doesn't pay for reliability. It's an energy only market. And, you know, why would you, a power plant owner, pay to operate in sub freezing temperatures in Texas if you're not going to get additional compensation for that expense and you're only selling your energy, right? The flip, the opposite model. Is, is PJM in which they do have a very formal capacity market and they pay these power plants to be on standby. But just last month, uh, right before Christmas, I mean, there was a massive generation failure in part mm. because of fuel supply issues, but also because of mechanical issues. And there was like a major need for conservation within that region, right? <laughs> and so it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, these power, these power plants are gonna get penalized because they didn't show up when they were needed, like they were paid to do, but they were paid to do that, and yet they still weren't there. And um, one challenge, though, I think is uh, within every market right now, there is a challenge in managing the pace of change, right? Mm. Because you've kind of got market forces driving out certain generation, you've got, you know, certain state targets to have um, certain amounts of clean energy come online. So it's like kind of policy driven, it's kind of market driven. And then of course, the system as a whole, like changes on the system in one part of the country do affect the system in other parts of the country. And it's so fragmented in terms of oversight. And so you've got all of these forces and very little coordination within different areas of the country, which I think in going forward has the potential to be very destabilizing. Um, so it's gonna require like a lot of very careful management, but that management is sort of, um, so uh fractured <laughs> yeah it's gonna be a real challenge but i mean i guess to answer your question succinctly every single market is going to have to change in terms of design in moving into this new future um in different ways and for different reasons but it we're definitely going under undergoing a real period of change and transition and challenge yeah in the us no i t- totally agree it's it's so funny right i mean aurora operates across apac uh, Europe and the States now. And often I get these emails from colleagues in Germany saying, hey, we're here in Australia, you're doing a great job of building transmission. Like, how do you do it? And we're like, no, 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 we're doing a terrible job. How do you do it? So there's always this assumption that some other market has nailed, you know, key parts of the transition. And it's usually just not the case. I do think the, and you've pointed to them already, but the two additional challenges in California one is the, the dryness that California's experienced recently, which has affected both hydro, but also wildfires. And the second is just the pace of decarbonisation that has been set in California is so is, is aggressive and, and therefore what 
you know, other markets might do over 20 years. California is realistically trying to do over 10 to 15, which obviously mm-hmm. just makes the whole thing harder and potentially more expensive as, as well. Mm-hmm. Just out of personal curiosity, as a journalist, it seems like you cover topics that really span the energy space. How do you stay across all of these and more than that, communicate things in such a way that readers, regardless of you know their level of interest in or, or previous exposure to the topic, can really digest and appreciate? Yeah, um, it's definitely a challenge. Um, but you know, in order to be able to explain things very simply without oversimplifying, you yourself have to have just the most thorough understanding that you can have. And so um, I would not, I mean, it's, 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 it remains an evolving process for me and learning all of this stuff, of course. But I mean, just in terms of writing the book, <laughs> writing the chapter on deregulation probably like took several years off my life. I am so glad that I didn't <laughs> have to cover that at the time. I am so, so glad because <laughs> um, <laughs> like learning that in real time would have been an enormous challenge. But even just like sort of sitting with it and like thinking about what does this really mean? you know, how do you like, in like, what is the what is the essence of what is is going on here? Mm. Right? Like, what are the most salient points? And I think that's just sort of the process that you have to go through, you know, you have to really just sit with something and look for holes in your understanding and, and fill them in and then be able to sort of take that and distill it. So it's a uh, um, I'm sure some parts of the book do it better than others, because this is really complicated stuff. But uh one thing I have heard from readers, though, is that for the most part, they seem to to get all of it, which is that's a, <laughs> it's a good thing. I'm, I'm appreciative. I mean, I'm sure everyone else feels this about their own sector of the economy, but I do think energy is, is probably the hardest to write about as a journalist. I mean, I think retail or telco, you know what I mean? They're just kind of less complex markets, whereas energy, you know, there's electricity, there's gas, there's hydrogen, there's transmission. There's just so many different elements to it, all of which are intimately woven together. Mm-hmm. And I think people yeah. focus a lot on wholesale markets, but that that is only, as you've identified, one part of the problem and often not the major problem for a PG&E or whoever it might be. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that that's um, definitely true. I mean, even just talking about the wholesale markets, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in those markets right now. And I keep thinking about ways to try to write about it, but writing about power markets is one of the one of the hardest things for a general audience, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things in which if you're working with 800 or 1,000 words for a typical sort of newspaper story, four or 500 of those words is just explaining how it works, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> and then you quote so, the CEO at the end and you only have like a 100-word right? story. And yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, it's it's totally difficult and there's like such a the electricity space in particular is so peculiar. Um, and it's just, I, I do think that people are interested in it and thinking about it in a way that they haven't historically, just because we've had so many issues lately. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the baseline of understanding is any different than it was before. So that's yeah. sort of like the, that's the challenge. Um, and so if I can be helpful in that way, I, I'm, I'll feel uh, good about <laughs> It's also an industry, I find, I won't ask you to comment on this, but with people with a lot of fixed views, and often it's kind of middle-aged blokes 
who are engineers <laughs> who want to tell you that there is one solution to the world's energy crisis. And often it's small modular nuclear reactors, but it might be hydrogen. It might be compressed air. They've just got their pet technology. I'm sure yeah. you get a hundred emails a week explaining to you why, you know, there's a very simple solution to this if you just bothered to look into it. <laughs> uh, yes, I am familiar with that brand. <laughs> with <sure>. that time. <laughs> <laughs> One final question then, uh, just to wrap it up. And I always conclude the pods with this question. Um, who do you read or listen to in the energy space that you think is always good and thought-provoking, but also kind of relevant to your work as a, as a journalist? Are there any names that spring to mind? Um, so from a, from a climate perspective, especially um, sort of climate throughout the West and, and climate issues in California, I think Sammy Roth at the LA Times does a very good job. And I think he thinks pretty creatively about how to tell stories and how to mm. help people think about this big picture thing. Um, there are there are many energy podcasts out there right now, but I, I, I find them all to be thoughtful. You know, I think that there's um, I, I think it's a it's a good medium uh, to discuss some of this stuff. Right. And to have people on and to sort of talk in real time. Um, so I will say, like, if there's if you're looking to have a good understanding of what's going on in energy, especially the sort of the renewable side and energy supply and electricity, that sort of coverage has multiplied just in the last few years. Um, I think it used to be very sort of focused on conventional energy producers. And now where mm. um, there's a whole lot more people thinking about the transition in the grid. Yeah, no, completely agree. And very much second you there on Sam Roth, his weekly note boiling point is excellent and he's done a couple of deep dive stories about um i think ranches in the west of california and how they're totally. thinking about access to land and 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 those again are universal challenges but i think he does a really good job of bringing it to life so there's some great Definitely. recommendations yeah there. for sure Catherine, we've covered a huge amount there and, and you're enormously busy thank you so much for your time enjoyed it immensely in a fascinating discussion thank you again absolutely yeah thank you great to talk to you guys thanks Catherine. That was Catherine Blunt, energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal and author of California Burning, History of Pacific Gas and Electric, talking to Hugo Batten, Aurora's MD in APAC and California, and Kim Liu, head of research in California. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye. 